0: Uh, It wasn't long ago uh, that I can remember a time when we'd moved into our new house and we have uh, these nice new shiny tile floors and our our boys were running around in their socks and I told them numerous times, I'm like, you can't run on tile in your socks. It's not going to work well. I'd I'd given them kind of the rule, the precedent and I said, guys, it's not a good idea for you to run around in your socks. You're going to fall, you're going to hit your head and you're going to get hurt. Well, They were five-year-old boys, four-year-old boys at the time. So what do you think happened? They ran in their socks. And what do you think happened? They fell and they hit their heads and they landed on their bottoms and they got hurt. Now the rules that I gave them, they weren't meant to be a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't meant for daddy to take away their fun, was it? It was because I cared about them. I was concerned for them and I loved them and I didn't want to see them get hurt. But ultimately, they made their own choice, and they suffered some of the consequences. Now, God's word is just like that for us. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a way that we can earn God's favor by trying to keep it all, by trying to do the right thing. Uh, It's because he knows what's best for us. As we sang earlier, he is our good, good father. He knows what is good for us, and he wants us to experience good things. And so there are some things that God says, hey... I'm going to say no to this because I know that it's not good for you. And and I'm going to say yes to this because I know it is good for you. And unfortunately, we don't always choose to live by what God says is right and what God says is wrong. And that's often the case for the people in our lives as well. This morning, we're going to continue looking at Samuel. We're continuing in our series called Fighting by Faith, and we're going to see how Samuel, the spiritual leader of the people of Israel, how did he handle it when the people of Israel wanted to go a direction that he knew was against God's perfect plan? And how did he battle for their hearts? Because, see, this is, this is the thing, is that Samuel uh, loved the people of Israel. He shepherded them. He cared for them just like a father would for his children. And he didn't want to see them make a decision that was going to hurt them or cause them any pain. And so he begins to shepherd them. He begins to love them. It's out of this relationship for them that he begins to battle and fight for their hearts. And so I want us to learn this morning a little bit about what do we do when when the people in our lives... They may be a believer, they may be an unbeliever. What do we do when they make decisions that we know are leading them off of God's perfect will for them? When we know that they're making decisions that are ultimately going to hurt them because God's word says, hey, this is not right. Or God's word says, you should be doing this. And yet they continually choose to walk away from that. How do we battle for the hearts of those around us when they reject God's plan and they choose a different path? That's what we're going to examine this morning, and and I also want you to think about this. How do I respond when others are battling for my heart? Because ultimately there will come a time when someone else is going to see something in our lives and they're going to say, hey, I see you headed down this path and, and I love you too much to let you keep going. And so I want to challenge us not to just think about how we can help others, but how are we going to respond when someone that we love comes to us and begins to shepherd us back towards God's path? Just a little reminder of where we are. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. Last week we looked at chapter 7. And Samuel comes a number of years after Israel has left Egypt. They've come into the promised land under Joshua. And they've taken control of the promised land. But they didn't fully obey God. God told them, hey, go in and drive out all the people that are in the promised land. And that way it's just yours. Otherwise they're going to lead you astray and you're going to worship their gods. And they didn't do that. They didn't obey. So what happens They end up worshiping other gods. They start inviting in these other false gods into their worship, and they kind of include them in with their worship of God. And so what happens is God says, hey, I can't allow this to keep going on. So he sends different countries like the Philistines to come and kind of discipline them. He uses them to judge them. And the people cry out to God when they're oppressed. And God says, you're still my people. I love you. And so I'm going to raise up a judge Uh, This is the book of Judges. I'm going to raise up a judge, a political and religious leader, who's going to restore your hearts but also defeat the enemy. And so he does this a number of times. And we see this cycle of, of they, they hey, God, we're following you. But then they fall into sin, and God punishes them. And then they cry out to God, and he rescues them. And then they fall back into sin, and they just kind of go through this cycle until Samuel comes. And Samuel says in chapter 7, hey, if you guys are turning back to the Lord, get rid of everything and let's follow the Lord only. And so they do. They do this for about seven years. It's a very dark time in Israel. Samuel is actually uh, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, the first in the line of the prophets. And some things change because of what happens here In our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll go ahead and turn there, and uh, this is about seven years after the previous chapter, so less than a decade, this happens. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways, and they turned toward dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, I want to stop right here, uh, because there are some things that, as parents, I think often we give ourselves too much credit, and we also bear too much guilt. See, Samuel's sons did not walk with the Lord the way that Samuel did. We know the, the previous priest, Eli, his sons didn't walk with the Lord. And some scholars look at this and say, oh, Samuel must have been a bad father. He must have neglected his children and poured all of his time into the ministry. These are the first PKs, right? Preacher's kids that always go astray. Uh, but when I look at this text, that's not what I see. That's not what I see, and I, I believe that's not what the people of Israel saw You see, it's very clear when it says they turned toward dishonest gain and took bribes. I believe Samuel had raised up his boys in a certain way and when they were older, they made their own decisions. So for those of you who are parents in the room and you have children who are not walking with the Lord, I want to encourage you, don't be overridden with guilt. If you can look back and you can say, I did my best, Lord. God, I'm I'm doing my best to counsel them, to guide them on the right direction. You have to understand that they're adults and they're going to make decisions. And you shouldn't be overridden with guilt by that. They have their own decisions. They have their own choices to make. All right, so that's, that's bonus this morning here. Uh, so Samuel's sons turn away. Verse 4, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations. So here we see clearly that the people have rejected God's perfect plan. Verse 6 goes on and it says, When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered the demand sinful. So he prayed to the Lord. The elders come to Samuel and they ask that they could have a king because they want to be like everyone else. Now God knew that this day would come all the way back in Deuteronomy 17, uh, about 400 years earlier when when they were leaving Israel. Uh, excuse me, when they were leaving Egypt, God said, Deuteronomy 17, he says, the day's going to come that you're going to ask for a king and you're going to appoint the king. He says, be sure that you appoint the king that I choose. Now here's the problem with, with where they are right now. The king that God has chosen hasn't been raised up yet. They come for a king. They're unwilling to wait for God's timing. They're unwilling to do what God has asked them to do, which is to wait for the king of his choosing. Now I want to I ask you this, a, a personal question, which is how often do you settle for something other than God's best? See, this plan was not God's best. This was not his perfect will. How often are you willing to unwilling to wait for God's timing? How often do you turn and ask God for something because it's what the rest of the world has? See, I think there are times that, that we find ourselves searching for things that may be good things. God knew that they were going to want a king. God knew that one day there would be a king pointed over them. See, in reality, God was meant to be their king. God says, hey, I will reign over you, but I know the day's going to come that you're going to want a human king. But just make sure it's the one that I choose. But they weren't willing to wait on God. So they try to force the issue. They try to make things happen in their own timing. They're unwilling to wait for what God has planned. And I I believe that so often we ourselves are guilty of this, that we're unwilling to wait, that we're willing to settle for something less than God's perfect plan, perfect will for us. So they reject God's timing. They reject his plan all because of what? What do they say? Give us a king so that we can be like everyone else we want to be like everyone else. See, God had called the nation of Israel to be something different. He even told them all these laws, these rules that I'm giving you, they're meant to set you apart from everybody else in the world. So that when the rest of the world looks at you and they're like, "Wow, I can't believe the way your life is working out. I can't believe all these things. What what are you doing that's so different?" They would be able to say, "Hey, we're just following the instruction that God gave us." And it works. As the author and creator of life, don't we think that perhaps he knows what works and what doesn't? So why would we not choose to follow him? And so they were meant to be an example. They were meant to be set apart from the world. But here they say what? We want to be like everybody else. And we do the exact same thing all the time. All the time. We see somebody else driving that car, living in that house, going on that vacation. What do we do? We pull out our good friend MasterCard. And Visa, and we rack it up, right? We go into massive debt. Why? Because we want to be like everyone else, all right? And, and while we're here, let me just stop. I want to celebrate. We got some weirdos among us, right? We got some people who are truly weird. They have no debt other than their house. Isn't that weird? Like, if you can't say Amen, say Ouch, right? So Jack and Bell this last week paid off. Uh, their last debt that was non-mortgage. So all they have left is the mortgage on their house. Yeah. And they're on their way to having their uh, their emergency fund fully funded. Imagine. Imagine that. No debt. That's weird. But what do most of us do? Well, everybody else has it, so I deserve it. I want it. I need it. Uh, we see this in the way that we fill up our calendars. Well, everybody else is going from sport to sport, to dance to whatever, and we fill up our calendars with 26 hours of activity every single day, and we have no time to rest, to just be with our family, even just to honor God with a day of rest. And we, we say, well, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it. I've got to be like everyone else. We see this in the views of 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 what we think about sex and marriage. We say, well, you know what? Everybody else is having sex before they get married, so why shouldn't I? Everyone else lives together before they get married, so why shouldn't we? It makes sense, right? From the world's perspective, it makes sense. Or when it comes to divorce, it's like, well, this didn't work out. I guess we'll just get divorced. And instead of allowing God's Word to inform inform us on what we ought to think about sex and dating and marriage and divorce... Instead, we come to God's word and we say, well, here's what the culture's doing, so let me find some justification for me to be able to do what the rest of the world is doing because I want to be like everyone else. I want to be just like everyone else. We see this uh, in the way that we talk about our spouses, in the way we use uh, different language. Right, Because well, everyone else is doing it and we want to fit in. We want to be like everyone else. There's a little cartoon that I saw this week. I couldn't get a picture of it. But it's a group of ladies sitting at a restaurant and the waiter comes over. And one of the ladies looks up and says, oh, we're fine. Uh, we, won't, we don't need anything. We're just here to bash our husbands. Uh, and how true is that? That we don't honor our spouses in the way we talk about them to other people. Why? Because everyone else is doing it and we want to be like everyone else. And the way uh, I, I love this next one, uh, how many of you have ever woken up on a beautiful morning like today and said, uh, God, today is such a beautiful day. Uh, thank you for a beautiful Sunday. I'm going to honor you by skipping church to go enjoy this beautiful weather that you've given me. <laughs> Yesterday, I drove by uh, early in the morning. is about 8.30 in the morning. There's football games going on at 8 o'clock in the morning, Right? And I drive by and I see all these kids out playing. I see all the moms like decked out, full makeup, hair done. It's Texas, like blowouts and all that stuff. You know, high heels walking through the grass, you know, and the high heels trying not to strike oil. And they're out there. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, the same people that are here at 8 o'clock in the morning are going to stagger in 20 minutes late to a 10 or 11 o'clock service tomorrow. Why? Because they won't be like everybody else. They're just like everybody else. They want to be like everyone else. Uh, When I think about the way we watch movies and use social media, all of these things, we we find ourselves just wanting to be like the rest of the world. Well, I've got to watch this show because everyone else is going to be talking about it at church tomorrow. And let me say this. How often do we stress competency over character to our kids? We tell them, we expect you to be this good at whatever sport. We expect you to make straight A's. And what are we teaching them? The only thing that matters is how competent you are. I know we've got some students here that are getting ready to take some finals in the next couple weeks. Let me just tell you that the tests that you're about to take are not a measure of your self-worth. They're only a measure of how well you studied for that test. All right? Take that and believe that, right? It's not a measure of your self-worth. And let me say this. What's more important is that you be able to look back and say, I did my best at studying for this exam. You may not have a math brain. I don't have a math brain, right? God didn't give me one, so I didn't do well in math, right? I was like one of my only C's in college. So it's okay. What matters is, did you have the character to study hard, to work hard and honor God in the way that you studied? That's what pleases the Lord. Parents, we need to be stressing this with our kids. Character over competency. Hey, it's okay if you make a B. It's okay if you make a C if that's not your strength. What's not okay is for you to sit back and say, "Eh, I'm just not going to try hard because I don't have a math brain. That's not okay. You're going to try hard. And if you try your hardest, if you demonstrate character through that, then we're going to honor you and we're going to celebrate you that you worked hard. Character over competency. But what do we do? We want our kids to have straight A's. We want that bumper sticker that says, my kid is a straight A student at whatever school because everybody else is doing it. I want to challenge us this morning to think through how we approach our views on the world. I know this is kind of a a, a side thing, but I I really want to encourage you guys to think about, am I I forming my opinions based on what the Word of God says, or do I form my opinions and then come to the Word of God and look for justification for what I believe? One is idolatry, the other is worship. Got it? Let's move on. So Samuel is here. He hears this from the people, and his heart breaks. His heart breaks. We see that Samuel considered it sinful in verse 6. It says, uh, when they said, give us a king, Samuel considered the demand sinful, and he prayed to the Lord. Let's keep going. And he says, but the Lord told him, listen to the people. Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected Who? Me, they have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. So what's the first thing that we see with Samuel? First and foremost, if we're going to battle for the hearts of people, we see that there's a deep, deep relationship between Both parties, right? Samuel loves them. He's shepherding them. But we also see a lot of respect for Samuel. The people didn't have to come to Samuel and say, We want a king. But because they love and respect him as well, they say, Hey, Samuel, here's here's what we want. And what's amazing is that they do what we often do, which is they come to Samuel not asking for his counsel, they don't ask for his advice as their spiritual leader, they just say, here's what we want, and we want you to be okay with it. How many times do we go to God and say, God, here's what I want, here's what I'm going to do, and I want you to bless it? I can't tell you the number of times I've done marriage counseling. People come to me and say, hey, uh, we're getting a divorce, so we want marriage counseling. I'm like, "Uh, you've already decided what you're doing. What you want is for me to tell you that I'm okay with it, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. We don't come to God with our stuff after we've made decisions and say, Lord, bless my mess. What we have to do is we have to come to him and say, God, what is your perfect will? But here they come and they say, hey, Samuel, we want God to bless our mess. We're willing to settle for less than his perfect plan, and and we just want him to bless that. And what does Samuel do? What does Samuel do? Let's look back. We see that Samuel intercedes for them. Samuel intercedes for them. Samuel is a man of prayer. Samuel is a man of prayer. We see this in verses like Psalm 99, verse 6. He's listed among Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who what? Called on his name. They called to Yahweh and he answered them. Called to Yahweh and he answered them. He's a man of prayer. Get this, Jeremiah 15. This is way after. Israel has gone way off and they're about to be put into exile. Uh, They've been put into exile, and they're not following the Lord. And this is what God says. He says, even if Moses and Samuel should stand before me, my compassion would not reach out to these people. Send them from my presence and let them go. That's harsh. What's happened here is that the people of Israel have hardened their hearts against God. And he says, hey, even if a man of prayer like Samuel comes, I don't think I can stop the direction that the people are on. So Samuel is listed as these, this man of prayer for the people. Samuel intercedes with the Lord on behalf of the people. And I love this. Go back to verse 6. It says, Samuel considered their demand sinful, so he yelled at them. Is that what it says? Anytime I say something, the word of God... There you go. Whenever I say something the word of God doesn't say, you say heresy. Samuel considered their demand sinful, so he yelled at them. Samuel considered their sin uh, sinful, so he held up a sign and said, God hates No. Samuel considered their sin, uh, considered their demand sinful, so he quoted a bunch of scripture at them. Samuel considered their, their demand sinful, so he called his C group and passed it around as a prayer request, but really it was just gossip. <laughs> you can't say amen, say ouch. All right? Samuel considered their sin, considered their demands san- sinful, so what did he do? He prayed. Who did he pray to? The Lord. He comes before the Lord and says, God, God, please, I'm coming before you on behalf of these people who are not walking with you, and I want to pray for them. Turn their hearts, Lord. He intercedes for them. He, he pleads for their behalf. Verse 7, we read this. It says, but the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. See, a lot of people look at this and they think Samuel is personally hurt by their choice for him to no longer be their political leader because that's kind of what a judge was. He was a spiritual and political leader. And they think Samuel has his feelings hurt that he won't be the political leader anymore. But I look at this and I see something completely different. I look at this and I see Samuel... Samuel's heart break because here are the people that he's been trying to lead to the Lord and they're rejecting it. So his heart breaks and God comes to him and comforts him and says, Samuel, you're in good company. I've been trying to lead them to let me be their king. I've been trying to lead them into a relationship with me for the last thousand years. And they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting your spiritual leadership they're rejecting me just the same as they have for for so long. So how do we intercede for people? What is it that we pray? Uh, we know that Samuel was a man of prayer. We know that Philippians 4, six encourages us to make all of our requests known to God. Anything that disturbs us, we should, be, we should feel free. There's nothing too big or too small. In fact, in my community group this last week, we talked about that. We had someone in our group who lost her credit card, couldn't find it. And she's like, okay, I know this is crazy. It's something small. God probably doesn't care. But God, would you help me find my credit card? And within minutes, she finds her credit card. Right? There's nothing too small that God does not care about. He loves you. If it's a concern for you, it's a concern for him. He wants you to bring it before him. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to keep praying for the Lord's people. James 5.16 tells us this. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of a righteous person is very, very powerful. We're commanded to be praying for one another. So what does it look like when we intercede? This is the best way I can describe it. When we intercede for someone else, we reach out and grab the hand of God and we acknowledge him for who he is and we say, God, I am coming before you because I know that you are the only one that can change this situation. You are the only one that has the power to do this. And then we reach out and we grab the hand of the other person. We say, God, this is the situation in this person's life. And you know that my heart breaks for them. You know my desire is to see them restored to relationship with you. And I know that you are the only one that can change that. I'm willing to do whatever you have for me to do to help them. But God, I need you to change their heart. And we bridge the gap. We're We're standing there holding the hand of God and holding the hand of the person that we're praying for and we're standing in the gap for them. That's what it means to intercede. We're coming before the Lord on their behalf so we intercede for them. And then we see see this next. God tells Samuel exactly what he's supposed to do. Verse 9 again. It says, Listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. We're going to stop there. So God tells Samuel to go back and warn them. He says, give them a warning, but the warning must also be gentle. So when we're interceding for others, when we're battling for their hearts, we must warn them solemnly and gently. Solemnly and gently. Samuel warns the the people of the follower of their request, and I'm, I'm not going to read that whole passage there if you want to know. He basically says, here, you want a king? Here's what's going to happen. He's going to tax you. He's going to take the best of your land, the best of your people, the best of everything. You're going to have to go out and he's going to make, he's not going to go out and battle before you. He's going to take your sons. He's going to put them in his chariots. He's going to make them run in front of his chariots. So who's going to die in battle? Not the king, your sons and you. I'm warning you, here's what's going to happen. You want to go down this road. Here are the consequences. You want to slide on the tile in your socks. You're going to bust your head. Right? So he gives them a warning, but he doesn't come to them and poke his finger in their chest because he loves them, he has a relationship with them, he cares for them, he's, he's pleading with them, guys, don't do this, please, it's not going to be what you think, I promise it's not going to be what you think. And so he warns them solemnly, uh, it, that word solemn it, as, is as if he was under oath, as if he was testifying to the truth, testifying to the reality and then we see this idea of gentleness and this really comes from the new testament second 2 timothy 2:24 2, and 26 we read the lord's slave must not quarrel but must be what gentle to everyone able to teach and patient instructing his opponents with gentleness perhaps god will grant them repentance leading them to knowledge of the truth then they will come may come to their senses and escape the devil's traps having been captured by him to do his will The gentleness is key. Gentleness is key. The solemnness is key. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 tells us this. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a what? Gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves, so you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? What did he say was the most important law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As we bear one another's burdens, as we restore the person gently, we fulfill that law, bringing them before the Lord and bringing restoration. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a great example for when someone is caught in sin. And and let me make this clear. Uh, What we're talking about here is when someone is caught in sin, not just when when they're going to make a decision that we're not sure about. We're talking about when they're in sin. A okay? uh, great example of this is before Man and I church planted, we had people at our ch- last church that were telling us, don't do this. Your kids are never going to have vacation Bible school. Your kids aren't going to have the cool Sunday school program that we have. It's not fair to your kids. This is wrong. You shouldn't do it. Was what we were doing sin? No. So what did we get? We didn't get their counsel. We just got their their own approval, right? That's what they wanted. Uh, it was their own thoughts, not the Lord's thoughts. So we have to be sure that we're dealing with actual sin here. And then we come to people and we know that as we confront people, the idea is not for us to get to the point, you know, a lot of people think about church discipline and they think about kicking people out. That's not the point. The point of church discipline, the point of approaching someone and battling for someone's heart is always restoration. It's restoration between their relationship with God and restoration in our relationship with them. And that's exactly what we see. Samuel comes to him and says, hey, this king is going to break your relationship with God, and it's going to break your relationship between you and other people. So don't do this. He warns them. He gives them a warning. And then we see in verses 19 through 22 what happens next. He warns them. The people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we will be what? Are you guys awake this morning? Like all the other nations, we want to be like everybody else. Our king will judge us. He'll go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel listened to all the people's words, and then he repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to his own city. So what happens here? Samuel lets them make a choice. Samuel lets them make their own choice. This is the hard part for many of us as we battle for the heart of someone else. We've prayed for them. We come before them and we say, hey, I just want you to know if you choose to go down this path, here's what the word of God says may happen. And I don't want you to go through that. But then we have to step back and we have to say, hey, it's your choice. You've ultimately got to make the decision. A really good friend of mine, when I was in Dallas, he was my accountability partner. He had four girls. He was an undercover police officer, like the biggest, burliest man you've ever met. Uh, and he had four girls. And two of them were really close in age, and they were going to spend the night at a friend's house on a Friday night. And he told them, he said, look, you can go over and spend the night, but tomorrow we have all these chores around the house, so don't stay up too late. I don't want you staying up all night, right? So he gave him a very clear instruction. He says, because if you stay up all night, you're going to be tired, and it's going to be a miserable day for everybody. Well, what do you think the girls did? They stayed up all night, and they came home, and they said, Dad, we want to take a nap. And he's like, ha, nope. I told you, we had chores. We have work that we have to get done today. And so it was, he describes it, I can't even describe it the way he describes it. It was the most miserable experience of their lives, having to be up, because they had stayed up all night. They didn't ever actually go to sleep. And now he was making sure that they were doing their work. And there was, uh, I think he said, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is the way he described it trying to get this work done. He had to step back and let them make their choice. And parents, as parents, I think this is a great reminder for us. Sometimes we have to let our kids make a bad choice so that they can learn from it. It's a teachable moment. Then we can step in and say, okay, let's process this together. Now, we're not talking about like life and death decisions, but sometimes we have to let our kids fail and say, all right, you made your choice. Here's the consequence. I think if we let them fail in the small stuff, then as they get older, they're going to have learned their lessons and they won't fail when it really counts when they're out there in the world. Just a little extra there. So there's three reasons. I always wondered about this. Why doesn't God just stop them? Why doesn't God just say, no, you're not going to have a king? No, you're not going to do this. And there's three reasons why I think he does this. God is not pleased at all with their request, but sometimes he crosses us in love And at other times he gratifies us in his wrath. Okay, sometimes he says no to us in love and other times he says yes to us in his wrath. And the reason I think he does this is so that they might be beaten with their own rod, right? That they might experience the consequences of what they're really asking for. God looks at us at times. He says, you want to travel down that road? I've, I've tried, I've warned you, but now I'm going to let you travel down that road and let you experience it. You want to stay up all night? I'm going to let you experience what it's like to be tired because you stayed up all night. And God does this not out of anger, but out of love because he wants us to remember in the future, hey, I've been down that road before and I don't want to go down there again. Second thing is, I think he was trying to prevent something worse. See, the people wanted a king. They were gracious enough, had enough respect for Samuel to come to him. But if Samuel says no, there's a chance that the people would riot, that they would fight At least in this way, God gets to be involved in the process. It's Samuel who gets to appoint the king. But God was trying to prevent something worse. Third, uh, I think that God knows how to bring glory to himself even out of less than ideal circumstances. Amen? You ever been there? You ever settled for less than God's perfect will and yet God still brings himself glory? And I think God still knows how to bring himself glory even though... They were making a foolish and unwise decision. So, about a year goes by between chapter 8 and chapter 12. In chapter 12, we now have Saul as king, and Samuel recognizes, Hey, Saul is now established as king, so it's time for me to retire from public service. I'm going to stay your spiritual leader, but I'm not going to be your political leader anymore. And so, in chapter 12, uh, the people come to Samuel again. He goes to them and he says, Hey, look, I'm retiring. But before I retire, I wanted to be clear that I've not wronged anyone, that I've not taken any bribes, that I've been faithful to the Lord, that I've lived with you with integrity. In verse 4, they say this, you haven't wronged us, you haven't mistreated us, and you haven't taken anything from anyone's hand, they responded, right? So they're saying, yeah, you've been a great leader, okay? So then he reminds them of all the things God has done for them over the last thousand years. Uh, as, as they've been led out of Egypt and into the promised land, all the way from, from the leadership of Moses up until Samuel's day. And then they say this in verse 19, they pleaded with Samuel. He reminds them about their asking for a king. They pleaded with Samuel to the Lord. He said, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we don't die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. So they come to a point where they recognize their sin, and they ask Samuel to do what? Pray for them. Now imagine how it would have gone when they got a king if Samuel had come to him and said, See, I told you so. I warned you. I told you. I was right. Let me hear you say it. I was was right. I want to hear it. I need to hear it for my own satisfaction. Now, if Samuel loved them, he continued to pray for them. And I love this reply. Verse 20. Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things. What are the worthless things? Being like everybody else. Those are the worthless things. Don't, instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or deliver you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he is determined to make you his own people. I love this, 23. As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and the right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. So the last thing we see, we see that Samuel has, has interceded for them. He's warned them uh, solemnly and gently. He lets them make their own choice. And then what does he do? He commits to continue praying for and shepherding them. He's going to continue praying and shepherding them. He says, look, guys, you made a mistake, but I'm not going to leave you just because you made a mistake. I'm here for you. I love you and I care for you, and I'm going try to try my best to show you the right way. And so he does. Now I want to say that in your life, it may not always work out this way. That person that you're praying for may never come to that point where they say, oh, I realize that I've sinned. That may never happen. So what's your responsibility? Do you reject them? Do you walk away from them? No. The example we have is that we continue praying for them. We persist in praying for them. And we continue to show them the right way. Our prayers that God would eventually bring them to that point. You never know when it's going to happen. I have a good friend that I've been praying for for a long, long time. And just recently, our, our relationship, had there was a little bit more and more distance in there, but I continued to pray for him. And I didn't think anything was ever going to change. And just recently, he put his trust in Jesus Christ. Something that I, I personally, in the back of my mind, had gotten to a point where I was like, yeah, it's a long shot. I persisted and God was faithful and he answered. You never know when God's going to to work in the ways that he does. I want to challenge us this morning. Think about ways that, that you're battling for someone's heart. Is there someone in your life? It may be a believer that you need to be praying for that they would be restored to their relationship with God. It may be an unbeliever that you're praying for that they would put their trust in Jesus Christ. How are you battling for the hearts of people? Because I think often we think we're doing a good job but we're making some mistakes. We're not basing our, our battle for their heart on a relationship. A lot of times it's maybe a coworker that we think we have enough relationship with, and we just start trying to speak into their life when there's not enough love and care, right? We all know that saying, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yet we want to come to them and say, hey, I want to point out what you're doing wrong, and they're like, I don't know you. I don't know you. We make that mistake or we think, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to them and I'm going to be gentle and our way of being gentle is wagging the finger and poking them in the chest. So we need to be careful that we're being gentle. We need to be careful that we're not going to our friends and asking their counsel, but we're going before the Lord and seeking his wisdom. We have to be careful. We have to be careful that if they do turn, we don't say, see, I told you so, because what do you think will happen the next time? They're not going to want to listen. We have, to, we have to watch the way that we walk. We have to commit to having a shepherd's heart for the people in our lives. I want to challenge us also. There will come a time when someone will love you enough to say, hey, brother, I see you going down this road, and I, I want to I warn you. Think about your own heart and how you would respond. Do you have the humility that it takes to say, you're right. I see that you love me, and I need your help. Will you do that? Because we know that the battle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle that we wage. I want to encourage you guys this week, as you think about those in your life that you're battling for, will you intercede for them? Will you offer, when it's appropriate, that gentle, loving, solemn warning to them? Step back and let them make their choice and then commit to continuing to pray for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank